hills all the way down. This, I fear, is foolishness um, all, all the way down. And what I'd like to do is share with you the outlines of several of these levels of, of foolishness. And to do so only in the broadest patterns, because after all, half an hour for a theory of history <coughs> doesn't go very far. But I'll, I'll at least give you an inkling of where I'm going. So I'd like to divide the talk in part into talking about the epistemological and ontological assumptions that drive it, and say a little about the substance of the theory itself. I don't think I have time to go into how it applies to current politics. If I do have a few minutes, I'd like to at least attempt to say a few things there, because that's ultimately the payoff of, of such a theory. I start with the notion that uh, modernity has uh, done away with and significantly reduced the richer understanding of the psyche understood by the ancient Greeks, implicit in Thucydides and explicit in Plato and Aristotle, uh, who divided the mind into three drives, or three parts, each with drives of its own. The appetite, which we all lunchtime understand, <laughs> the spirit, what the Greeks called thumos, which was quite different from the appetite and often in conflict with it, and the spirit was related to the universal drive for self-esteem. The Greeks reasoned that we achieve self-esteem by excelling in activities that are valued by our peer group and society. By winning the approbation of others, we feel good about ourselves. So these are competitive activities. They're driven by emotions. And they, like appetite, can easily get out of hand and lead to conflict. And this is where the third part of the mind comes in, reason. You know, for moderns, reason, as you put it, is uh, simply the slave of the passions, and, and ought to be. And that's the function it performs, let's say, in Freud's model of the mind and in modern strategic choice theories. For the Greeks, reason sought to understand what made for a happy life, and to constrain and educate both the appetite and the spirit to cooperate with it toward that end. Okay. So I start with the notion that reason, spirit, and appetite generate different ideal worlds. And the world of an appetite, uh, of course, modern world comes very close to being a world dominated by appetite, the Western world. Uh, spirit worlds, Homeric Greece was the classical example, and many traditional warrior societies in Europe for much of its history can be described in part as spirit-driven worlds. Reason-driven worlds remain thought experiments, whether it's by Plato or Kant or science fiction authors. Uh, we, we've never had a reason-driven world, but what we have had is reason successful enough in a degree to educate and constrain appetite and spirit to create and sustain community and to lead people to understandings from both reason and emotion that their own needs can only be fulfilled through membership, participation in, and sustenance of a community. And when that happens at any level from individual to international, you have the basis for a, an order, uh, political once it goes beyond the individual level. And that the rise and fall of orders 
are therefore functions of balance and imbalance, uh, reasons loss of control to either appetite or to spirit. And starting with these series of ideal types, I argue that real worlds are obviously uh, exist somewhere in the triangle defined by the vertices of reason, spirit, and appetite, and that one can devise measures to track uh, changes in them to identify if there are certain stable states toward which uh, worlds uh, move. Now, balance and imbalance brings me to a second epistemological assumption, and, and that is that modern social science works in terms of levels of analysis. And we tend to ask different questions about international politics than we do about domestic politics or about the individual. And we use different approaches to understand uh, the workings at these levels. For the Greeks, levels of analysis was a strange idea. If anything, uh, they thought along the lines of nested matrushka dolls or maybe even fractals, where the same process exists just at different levels of magnification. <coughs> And balance and imbalance at any level has profound implications for balance and imbalance, in other words, stability and instability, at adjacent levels. And this is uh, clearly an implicit uh, 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 theme that runs through Thucydides, linking individuals to domestic politics and domestic to, to regional politics. And it's made more explicit uh, by Plato in his uh, Republic. So I argue that the Greeks that the Greek understanding of order and disorder and of the psyche not only gives us a handle into studying orders, but a mechanism for bridging levels of analysis in a more systematic, interesting way uh, than is possible otherwise. And my third assumption here is that one of the problems of existing theories, not only of international relations, but most of our theories, and by the way, Marxism aside, Marxism gets very good grades here, is that there all theories of structure, of stability, rather than theories of change. And to the extent that they posit structures as explaining what's going on, explaining change all, almost becomes oxymoronic because you have to vary uh, that which you're using as your principal explanatory uh, uh, variable, so to speak. Uh, Marxism is different because Marx argued that uh, systems, capitalism in particular, is always undergoing changes. It's never the same. And in fact, it's the evolution that enables you to understand uh, processes of change. So I'm building a theory that's as much a theory of process as it is of structure. And going back to, to Bergson, I would argue that when we look at order, or what we see as order patterns, uh, they're simply snapshots of a social reality that is constantly in flux. And what's important to us is understanding the processes of change and the dynamics that drive that change rather than the structure at any given moment. And so, uh, in the most fundamental sense, that's what my theory is about. Now, uh, what I'm doing... Let me see how I can do this in terms of what's left. Okay, only nine minutes. I'm impressed. <laughs> I am, in the first part of the book, I'm returning to the Greek understanding of uh, the spirit 
and arguing that this is a universal drive and one that is ignored in all of our understandings of politics, or most of them. If you look at existing theories of international relations, for example, uh, leave constructivism aside because it's a theory of, uh, of how things are organized and you need to import the substance in it, but Marxism, liberalism, and realism are all uh, rooted in appetite in the end. Uh, there's no theory uh, that looks at uh, honor, recognition, honor, and standing as being central drives. And so I'm devising a paradigm of politics based on spirit. And I'm arguing, for example, that it's different in the modern world than it is in the ancient world for different reasons. Honor and uh, standing have diverged. And if we have time, we can discuss this. And building my theory, I then deduce from it uh, a series of propositions, the utility of which I try to demonstrate in a set of doubly hard cases. And that is the international politics of Europe and, by extension, the rest of the world since the French Revolution. So the 19th, 20th centuries and the post-Cold War world arguing that these should be the hard cases for uh, the spirit in a double sense. In the first, that they take place in a world, at least in the West, and parts of the East, it's been dominated by appetite, as opposed to the 18th century, where you can easily make a strong case for uh, wars being uh, uh, questions of standing. And it's doubly hard because it deals with politics at the international level, where power is supposed to be so dominant, as opposed to uh, domestic or group politics, where you might easily uh, make the case that standing and recognition are, are more important. So what this book does, after laying out uh, my theory, it focuses on one component of it, and it develops the paradigm of standing, and it starts by applying it not to these hard cases, but to easier cases. Uh, the first is the emergence of the modern state. And I make an argument, I, I must say, different from the one that Jeffrey Parker and, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, I'm having to see him over here again for sure. Mm -hmm. The fellow who's written so widely on emergence of states, who's a sociologist. Tilly. Tilly? Tilly, yeah, Chuck Tilly. And arguing not that they're wrong, but that there's another narrative that can be told based on standing and that to understand the emergence of the state, you really have to understand both, uh, rather than just looking at it from one of these perspectives. And I also use it to look at 18th century politics and pre-Tokugawa Japan and periods of Chinese history, uh, arguing that uh, it provides a far better uh, explanation for what went on than any other existing theory. And then I come to my, to my hard cases. Now, um, it is a hard case, and let me come at this point to the relevance to international politics, and then I want to come back and look at the broader theory. Uh, if you think about standing in international <coughs> relations in modern times, it's a very interesting phenomenon that, on the whole, uh, it is the last uh, vestige of warrior societies where standing is on the basis of military prowess and power. Uh, and that traditionally, uh, states have achieved both recognition and standing, I mean, two different things, and we can talk about that later, on the basis of their 
military capabilities and their power. The challenges to this arose uh, with the American Revolution, the French Revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution, and the Chinese Communist Revolution, with leaderships in each of these governments demanding both recognition and standing on a basis that was different than pure power. On uh, far more ideological bases, and we're of course seeing it today, and I'll come to that. And that I, interestingly, each of these challenges to the old order failed. And ultimately, the Americans, the French, the Russians, and the Chinese went back to asserting their standing on a very traditional basis of their power. So recognizing themselves that the challenges had failed. But there are other challenges of traditional ways of measuring standing happening in the world today. Throughout much of the Muslim world, for example, uh, the criteria are put forward are quite different. The European Union, Scandinavians, the Canadians have been developing an alternative standing face, starting with wealth, but not having it, but what you do with it. The criteria being providing a better life for your citizens and using a percentage of your assets to help others. So this challenge is mounting to traditional understandings of how standing is achieved. Now, to the extent that these challenges succeed and that perhaps you have multiple understandings of standing in the international system, it will have profound implications for the nature of foreign policy goals and how they're achieved. And one could imagine a situation where 25 or 50 years from now, you would look back on the Iraq war and see it in an entirely different perspective than anybody has described it today. You say, yeah, you know, this was the last gasp of the old way of trying to gain influence through the use of military power. And here we have a case of a country that was more powerful than anything that had ever been before, able to use its physical power, thinking that others would bandwagon to it, but in fact, in the process, seriously undermining its standing and its influence. And the two are very clearly related. And I have a section in the book that looks at the links between these. And becoming a dinosaur uh, on the international system, unless it changes the way in which it does things, the same way the Soviet Union, for different reasons, had earlier become a dinosaur, but whose leaders didn't recognize this until quite late uh, in the game. So ultimately, I argue, the question of standing because of its effect on influence is a very important one that hasn't been investigated uh, very much at all in international relations. And why is it important? And it's important, and a little piece of this I published in the current issue of Millennium, if anybody's interested, in a piece on power and ethics. Because uh, realists, in particular, make the mistake of assuming that material capability is the same as power, and power is the same as influence. But material capability is only one part of power, and power doesn't translate automatically into influence. When you try to use it directly in influence, it's through threats and bribes, like putting together a coalition of ah, the willing. <laughs> ah. It's very costly. <coughs> and, <coughs> consumes power, the most efficient way of exercising influence is by persuasion, by convincing others that, both, that you both have a right to lead 
and that what you're doing is in the interest of the community as a whole, and therefore it's a cheap way of advancing interests for others to support you and accept your leadership. And increasingly, I'm arguing, the United States has gone from what the Greeks would have called uh, hegemonia, uh, a position of leadership that was recognized and conferred on you by others, to becoming an arche, which is the word for control, where the U.S. can only get its way through bribes and threats. And that is uh, not only inefficient, it is ultimately destructive. So there's a powerful link here between these uh, soft, uh, touchy-feely, ideational uh, kinds of concerns and the core interest of most scholars of international relations, power and influence. And in fact, we should think far more about influence than we should about power. Now, let me step back. Yes, let me step back and try to situate this all in a broader theory of politics and history. The theory of politics, briefly, is linked to this notion of balance and imbalance in orders. And so that leads to the deeper question, well, what is it that brings about balance and imbalance? In what way does reason combined with example and emotions work uh, to sustain uh, an order? Uh, and here I try very carefully to define my categories and to look at the powerful role that emotions play in sustaining order and creating good judgment, just the opposite of the way psychology largely looks at it. But all the recent research in neuropsychology, which I try to bring in, suggests that from the point of beginning processing of information, uh, emotions uh, come into the picture and often play, generally play, a very positive role in producing good decisions and that this is something that needs to be uh, foregrounded in our understanding of decision-making in politics and to look at the social situations in which this happens well as opposed to the pathological kind of emotional intervention in, in decision-making. And this then brings me to the question of ethics. Plato, Aristotle, and Max Weber, how's that for real, <laughs> all wrote that the shortest lived regimes were tyrannies, that you could not have a stable order that was not rooted in some conception of justice. And so ultimately, it's justice and recognition of justice that drives order. And what I'm discovering, and I can, don't have time to elaborate this now, is that the principal source of disorder is the blatant practice of injustice by the elite, which undermines uh, the order uh, in two kinds of ways. It threatens others who, I know it's hard to use the word preempt in a neutral way anymore, but who may preempt uh, because they fear that their own appetite or spirit is being threatened, and Aristotle specifically talks about this as even a Greek word that comes close to, to preemption here. And the second, of course, is by example. Well, shit, if these people can get away with it and not get caught and flouted, why can't I? And then all of nomos uh, unravels. So I'm trying to link justice, emotions, balance, and order in this theory of politics. And then I'm trying, as I said, to root all of this in a theory of history. And my theory of history has three levels to it. It has one level to make everybody happy from different, different perspectives. The first level, and it's a superficial level, I confess, is what you might call the realist level, recognition that realist worlds 
are in fact the default. That anywhere you look, in any culture throughout history, you can track uh, order as a constant process of trying to escape from disorder and chaos and Hobbesian worlds to create order. And when order is created, it's fragile, imperfect, and never endures. So it always, in the end, unravels. So we're back and forth in cycles of trying to escape from, but always falling back to uh, what you might call realist worlds. Now, we may be out of these worlds for a very, very long time. And in between Hobbesian worlds and all other kinds of worlds for a long time, but the bottom line that's out there at the end of this continuum is this Hobbesian world. But this is only the most superficial level of change in my theory. I'm arguing at a deeper level of change that we've seen a progression over the course of human history from worlds that were dominated by appetite to those dominated by spirit to those dominated by appetite again. And now we're moving, even though we may not recognize it, toward a spirit-driven world again. Now, again, these are ideal types. All of them, appetite and spirit, are always present. But it's a question of which one is dominant or which folds into the other. And clearly, Homeric Greece, traditional societies, warrior societies, were largely spirit-driven worlds. And they emerged from appetite-driven worlds, hunter-gatherer, more simple societies. Once you had a differentiation of labor and surplus, you can support an elite, and an elite uh, that excels through its warrior activities, which initially serve a function for the society, the big struggle is recognition of being accepted into the elite where you can even struggle to achieve standing and then achieving standing within the elite. And I turn to Homer, who provides the most insightful uh, uh, view of how this happens, but also to uh, modern anthropological literature, which is strikingly Homeric without often understanding it. Appetite-driven worlds are two great examples of transitions are in 5th century Greece and, of course, modern, the modern West where we move from uh, gaining honor to gaining things, but in the modern world, not in the ancient world, as both uh, Rousseau and Adam Smith, of all people, were uh, among the first to observe that one of the reasons people want material goods is so they stand out from other people, that material goods are often sought not as an end in themselves, but as a means to an end. Some of you may have seen the wonderful bumper sticker on yachts and harbors that says, he who dies with the most toys wins. Uh, it's that kind of attitude. So it's become in the modern world very difficult to unravel uh, appetite and standing, and it's one of the reasons philosophically the two categories were collapsed uh, during the Enlightenment, because this process was understood as, as going on. But it's still largely an appetite-driven world, but once enough people have wealth, it becomes very hard to claim standing on the basis of wealth. I mean, there are ways in which you can do it, and I've been clipping little articles from the, what my wife calls the having section, the living section of the New York, New York Times. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite, most recent one, there are two. Uh, one is about designer jeans that now cost between one and $3,000 a pair. Okay? Because they have either a little diamond stud in here or some fancy stitch 
which only somebody who reads the living section and follows fashions would ever recognize. Okay, so it's a signal to a very narrow group, and the classic pattern of only signaling to those within the recognized circle and at great expense. And a Japanese restaurant in New York that charges $320 for a prefixed meal without alcohol service or tip. And you don't eat very much, and you eat whatever the chef wants you to eat. And the food's okay, according to the reviewer, but not great. It takes three months, or did at the time of the article, to get a reservation there, because everybody who's everybody wants to be seen eating there. So restaurants that cost a lot of money, you pay not because you're going to get better food and service, but because you're going to be seen there and have more standing within a particular circle. Okay? So these are the ways in rich worlds you can do it, but in the end it becomes farcical. So to stand out, one has to find other ways of doing it. And of course what happens is that the domains proliferate through which you can achieve standing, initially in uh, certain circles, limited circles, but perhaps some of those uh, expand to more broadly parts of society. But it's a far more pluralist uh, kind of concept of standing, the way modern identity, and Rick and I have talked about this at length, uh, is now multiple, right? So this, to me, is the future. It's already happening at the social level. It's beginning to happen at the state level, and I speculate that it's going to happen at the international level as well, and that we're even seeing signs of it, and I'm trying to track them by studying the kinds of justifications are, that are now being offered by countries seeking seats on the Security Council. Uh, you know, Brazil and India and Germany, Japan, on the basis of being a great power or something else. And it's often something else. And they're making claims and they're thinking that other people may be influenced by these claims. It's very interesting to track this changing narrative of what standing uh, is about. Now, my third level is, and I, I part, I, I've given it away, that in addition to changing from one kind of world to the other, that the characteristics of these worlds change. Okay? Uh, spirit worlds. Spirit worlds, just about every single one, uh, was a, uh, based on warrior status. I mean, there were changes in 5th century Greece through rhetoric and other kinds of things, and political service you could gain status. And certainly in China, where you had an exam system and the Confucian tradition, uh, it was also uh, a different. But grosso modo, these things are, uh, were based on, on, on warrior status. But what's happened is that the nature of standing is gradually changing. And I think there's, as I said, there's a huge shift underway in societies around the world, especially in post-industrial ones, which will gradually uh, be influenced or influence the next level up of international relations. And this is the, the slowest level uh, of evolution of human society. So that's an outline uh, of what I'm working on. It's, uh, as you can see, a very large project. And what I hope to do, as I said in the first book, is to develop the paradigm of order and then to focus in on contemporary politics to show the utility and then to root that in the broader theory in the second volume of the book. Cambridge is, is publishing uh, both of them. And to argue that as grand theory, it should be evaluated not on the basis of 
six or eight or ten propositions that it, it generates, although I do generate some propositions, but rather on two different criteria. Uh, does it raise a whole new set of questions that are interesting to understanding life and politics that we haven't been asking? And does it provide mechanisms for people to think about those problems and perhaps come up with answers and ultimately to create a, a research agenda uh, that will enrich uh, our understanding of modern life? That's my goal. Thank you very much. Alex, you go first. <laughs> um, a lot in this argument depends on this kind of truth at all or practical, practical view of the relationship between the individual and society and the system. Um, and that's a very interesting argument. I haven't heard an argument like that before. Good. Um, <laughs> but I guess I wonder whether it's true, and the, the assumption of that argument has to be that at higher levels, you get some kind of mirroring of the dynamic that goes off in the individual and the mind. And I guess I wonder if it's obviously more complex than that. Well, I guess I want to hear what you okay. more. Sure. I mean, is this just an analogy, or are you saying the states, for example, literally have appetites, have spirit, and in what sense could that be true? Okay. Um, so I guess I, I'm wondering what evidence you have for this. It's a very interesting argument, but is it true, and what evidence is it? Okay. Uh, there are a couple of ways of, of getting at this. Let me first offer one caveat of something that's very important. Um, when you go from an individual to a system level, whether it's from individual to state or state to region or region to international, which isn't captured by this, which is the, uh, again, I'm having a moment here, the, the effect, what's the technical term for it? Where you have effects at the system level that grow out of uh, what individuals did. Emergent? Yeah, emergent properties. Thank you very much. Uh, so very clearly, emergent properties are always important things to, to consider, and emergent properties are entirely outside of, of, of this conception. And so the conception is by definition uh, limited. Huh? But I still think it can provide a conveyor belt uh, for explaining a, a set of linkages that exist across levels which are now uh, not recognized and certainly not explored theoretically. So rather than saying that this is a substitute for all other ways of looking at it, I want to first argue that this is just an additional way, a very important one, that hasn't been examined. I don't want to exaggerate the extent of the claim I'm making, and this is true for everything else uh, that I'm making. That said, uh, what becomes important here are the treasure, are two things, are the nature of the similarities and the transmission belts uh, that are at work. And do states have um, psyches the way individuals do? Well, obviously the answer is no. Uh, I'm not so sure. Right? Well, <laughs> I know actually I quote you on this because uh, uh, you and Bob Jervis both uh, make arguments on the one hand saying, well, we all recognize that this is a metaphor, that there are differences, but then you go and say on another hand, but you know, we can sort of treat them uh, this way. Uh, you walk down both sides of the street, and I figure that if people like you can walk down both sides of the street, hey, I'll follow in your, in, your, in your footsteps. And what I try to argue here is that let's go to the, to the individuals, because we're the ones with, with psyches and these drives. To the extent that uh, individuals 
uh, have collective identities or individually have esteem that rise and falls through the accomplishments of groups to which they belong, okay? One can treat these groups as if they had uh, psyches because, in fact, they become collective representatives for a group of individuals. And that's what I'm arguing. And certainly with, uh, you know, modernity and nationalism, to take an example, uh, individuals did have their esteem rising and falling uh, all too much as a function of what the group was, was, was able to accomplish. And I think you see it today with uh, sports teams and the extent to which people get, uh, I don't want to offend anybody here, and I like sports too, uh, the extent to which uh, people's moods and well-being rises and falls with success and failure of their teams is a very good example of the extent to which uh, especially our thumos, more than our appetite, uh, is manifested through these kinds of affiliations. So if so, we can assume that these organizations are highly competitive in trying to do this, in part because of the consequences for individuals. So it's in that level I'm going to look at it, and then what I'm working on now is what are the best ways of, of finding the transmission belts. And here I found uh, not only the Greeks interesting, but um, certain modern writers, particularly Robert Musil in uh, Man Without Qualities, who specifically addresses the question of, of the ways, in, in, in this case, in which it works back from the society to the individual, and can you have a man without qualities who's free of this kind of, of structuring by the society? I'm still working out part of that question, but that's a rough answer. Alan? I think the ways you can bridge it on that, for example, you have to go back to your Marxist past, you know, just to talk about theories of class structure, for example, and equity issues and distribution of wealth and the animal. I think there are ways to accommodate the problem of jumping from the analog of the individual to state behavior, but it requires some theory of social change, I think, to make that, that gap and then to explain that. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question, whether which way you go, and I don't know the answer to this. It's, it's part of the theory that I still, yeah, I, I see it, if I can, like a blackboard that's dark and I'm shining a light, and there are certain places that are very bright, and others where the light goes a little, and some places it's still black, and this is one of those black places. Uh, to what extent should one step outside such a framework and look at socioeconomic changes uh, as a driver? Uh, or does one uh, say, you know, uh, it's, it's really an interactive process, that it's the ways in which uh, these changes are managed at different levels and either produce balance or imbalance uh, that ultimately affects order. And to the extent to which you have order, you in turn then have more influence on shaping the individual psyche. I mean, there are, I don't know quite how to work this out. I'd go back to the family structure, for example, <coughs> pattern. My experience living Asia for like 15 years, but we were struck by the fact that there's a tension between the idea of individual self-development, that we get up to Maslow's seventh level, uh, and the question of, of family cohesion over generations, and taking care of the parents, and doing other, these other kinds of Confucian responsibilities. You know, put more, much more tension there than there would be in our society, which is, you know, shoot the old man 
Experience teaching in Plato's Republic, actually, although also I was called undergraduates, right? Which is that there's a moment whenever you're teaching, I think a lot of people have this moment when you're teaching Plato, for example, where students recognize what you've said, which is that this is a really different way of thinking about uh, humanity, right? And man's relationship to uh, corporate political community, uh, then it's a very alien set of modes of thought in some respect to the modern Western. Experience, despite all the, the Greek heritage of you know, contemporary political and philosophical thought. And their sticking point is precisely this, this, this moment that, that people are, I think, harping on, which is this moment where Plato says, okay, well, we want to understand what, what makes for a just human being for man, so let's move to the Philippians, right? This composite model, right? Where, you can, where he, he sort of says, okay, well, let's bypass this problem by talking about what a just political society is like, and that will then tell us about what just Beings uh, and my undergraduates are always you know, sort of say, ah, oh, this doesn't make any sense, and how can you do this? And you know, usually then this becomes a, a you know, gosh, the Greeks were really different. <laughs> but that raises, I think, a kind of interesting question because the you hit very nicely on the notion of an ideal type as an idealization of this existing reality, and using ideal types as sort of parametric. You know, conditions to visualize concrete manifestations of order. But there's another aspect of Weber's ideal type methodology, which is the workaround of the problem called moralities, right? And we use ideal types in Weber not simply because um, you know they get us set us bravest clauses about thinking through laws or, or positions, but we use ideal types because uh, we are bound by our particular cultural circumstances. Right, you know, his line and objectivity. Ever since Nietzsche, we can no longer think that we have, you know, a view of objective reality. Right, and to that extent, um, I wonder to what it, to, to whether this ideal type deposit derived very much from Greek thought uh, is supposed to be a kind of objective set of parameters that really are historically universal. To what extent, really? What we're talking about here in terms of what you sort of describe as shifts between the appetitive or the spiritual or the reason thing, you know, sort of stuff. Uh, these aren't shifts within a kind whether these aren't shifts within a fixed framework that is exogenously given, but whether these are shifts in the very frame itself, the very set of ideal types that are relevant, and whether it's really sort of fair to then take this sort of Greek ideal type and say, we're just in a position in it now. Whether the whole position has the whole ideal typical framework hasn't shifted in the contemporary period. I, so that was too wordy. I'm sort of trying to get at. Hey, let, let me see if I can take a stab at answering that. Can people still hear me if I sit down? Um, by definition, uh, every conception is uh, a product of a particular culture and, and moment in, in history, right? even if it pretends to have universal uh, import. So uh, I, I accept that, and I accept that that is the most fundamental reason why my theory will be flawed. Okay? So I start from the premise that my theory is wrong, okay? because every theory is wrong in social science, and every theory is wrong in social science for two reasons. 
The first is that uh, starting points and assumptions by definition cannot be Archimedean. You know, they're, they're, they're limited. And secondly, uh, reality is just so complex uh, that there's no way we can really control and understand it, which is the insight of tragedy that efforts to do so, in fact, end up bringing consequences even more the opposite of the ones that, that you intended. But I also start from an assumption, and I, I didn't get into this epistemological assumption in my <coughs> talk, that social science differs from the uh, traditional model of physics, let's say, where you search for answers, and that that's the goal. And theories progress by being built on the positive findings of earlier efforts. Uh, I don't believe that happens in social science. I think what happens in social science is like a target gallery. Theories are like ducks that waddle across the shooting gallery. And the social scientists, especially the graduate students, are back there with powerful guns. And every single one gets shot out of the water before it gets to the other side. Okay, But in the process of that, you, you do more than just perfecting your aim or doing other things, maybe. Uh, by shooting down these theories, you've had to develop new techniques and ask other questions. And that social science ultimately progresses through the questions we ask and the tools we develop to ask those questions. That it's a different kind of progression. And so therefore, if my theory does not have an Archimedean point of view, if it's culturally limited, and if it's by definition wrong, so what? It may still be making a powerful <laughs> contribution. Uh, in a way that, in fact, most social science can aspire to do. Uh, secondly, I'd argue that I try as best as I can, because I obviously, even though I've now lived in New Hampshire and Ohio, and even Italy, have a, a somewhat limited perspective on things, I've tried to get away from it by recognizing that the Greek conception, the Greek conception was both universal and parochial. Okay? It was universal, and I think it did tap into something that transcends Greek culture and is universal, that human beings have appetites. And nobody's going to deny that. That human beings are uh, all seek self-esteem in one way or another, and that reason can be something more than just an instrumentality, but it's also an instrumentality. What is different, and where I think I try to transcend the Greeks, is I recognize that the way they use it froze a moment of history, of Greek history. And that's why I've developed this three-level approach for looking at it, arguing that that was really one snapshot in time that was changing as they wrote about it. And indeed, one of the reasons they're so interesting is they recognize it was changing, that youthies had been laughed out of existence, the old way of doing things, and that we need to understand it. And by building a theory of dynamics that attempts to understand the change, I'm not saying anything definitive about where we're going, even though I have speculations about it. And so that, in some way, limits the damage, uh, even though it doesn't solve the problem. But I think it's the best that we as social scientists can do. Yes? Where does fear uh, fit? Ah, yes, I didn't get to fear. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Big gap. What happens is that when balance begins to break down, you have a sharp transition from spirit-based or appetite-based worlds to fear-based worlds. And fear-based worlds are very easy to get into and very hard to escape from. They're lobster pots, which is what makes realism uh, the default. And why does it happen? Well, 
and, and again, Plato and Aristotle and Thucydides are absolutely explicit about this, it happens when uh, those who are competing, elites, get greedy, and they begin no longer playing by the rules and abusing their power, and so they threaten the ability of others to satisfy their appetites or to express their spirits. And when they fear that this is getting to the point where the other side is going to capture the mechanisms of state or whatever it is that sets up the rules of the game and use it for its own ends, they, tend, they preempt to stop this from happening or the other side acts because it fears the other side is going to preempt. And then the situation unwinds very rapidly. Huh? And Thucydides gives the classic example of this with the Corsairan uh, uh, Revolution. Aristotle has three other nice examples of it in, in Greek states. And that's the process by which things flip. And it can happen within families, within societies, within regional systems, or internationally. And then, of course, you're in a world of realism. And the mistake that realists make is that while it may be a default, they think you can't get out of it. Okay, and they try to theorize in a way that, in fact, could even make itself fulfilling if we believed it. And liberals and many constructivists think that you can permanently um, escape from it, which is another kind of problem. So there's a tension in these theories that reflects different aspects of this cyclical process in reality. So interest and honor are on one end, fear on the other, with reason mediated. Thank you for bringing that up. My apologies. Bob Kelly in the back had his hand up, and then two people, three people. We have, yeah. Um, using uh, the sort of tripartite platonic notion. Yeah, yeah. And you're an expert on this. Right. <laughs> I, I don't know much about modern psychology, but wouldn't modern psychologists sort of say that doesn't really actually work? I mean, wouldn't Freud sort of like dump the spirit and the athletes get over the edge and sort of say that that's Yeah, yeah, yeah. Freud would collapse them all into the edge. Okay. So, so, so but, what but, I was going to ask, is that a problem for you? That's sort of no, it's not a problem for me because the findings of neuroscience are... I'm not an expert on that. Yeah, well, neither am I, but that, and that's why I'm using it, because I figure on this audience... <laughs> uh, Dartmouth has one of the top neuroscience departments in the country, and initially I was very unhappy about this, because I hoped I'd find, you know, some people like myself, social and cognitive psychologists, people I could talk to who were doing interesting things. Oh, they're all mapping the mind, and you know, having people listen to music or uh, uh, watch television and see what fires where. Okay, like, yeah, that's boring stuff. <laughs> I mean, it's not intellectual, okay? even though I admit it's science and it, it's very valuable. And what they're finding is that different systems get triggered. And there's now a lot of evidence that can be used to suggest that appetite and thumos are distinct biological categories in terms of how our, our, our system works neurologically. And I'm, I'm trying now to learn more about this and get myself tutored. But from my initial conversations with these people, none of whom had ever read the Greeks, in some ways, like this editor I had, would you believe this, this is England? I got this piece back from a review of international studies. And the, the first three queries of the editor were for Thucydides, Plato, and Aristotle. First names, please. <laughs> uh, so when I explained to them that the Greeks 
thought of the piece. And, ah, you know, this really fits with what we're doing. And actually thinking of co-authoring a piece with one of these people, looking at the combinations. So it may well be that we can escape from a Freudian model and that there is real scientific evidence that what the Greeks tapped is there in human beings and that we can graph it and see it in these nice three-dimensional computer-generated color chart. Science! Yes? When you first spoke about the spirit world and the appetite world, um, my impression was that that was governing the entire world as a single unit. Um, but then later when you spoke about fear, it seemed to be that you could have different worlds going on at different levels, so family level, state level, yeah. um, multiple levels. And I, I guess I'm, I'm interested in how you find interactions within society or between states at different levels and how they trans are the levels catch? Are they contagious? This, this is or? a very good question, and I've been thinking about this problem, and I have some thoughts, but no answers yet. Okay. What I can do in answering your question is at least lay out the problem a little more um, in an organized way. That we both have um, all worlds, whether we go from individual to international, are combinations of the three, right? They exist somewhere in that triangle. Right? But they're also lumpy in the sense that individuals differ, states differ, and regional systems differ from one another. And even within them, we may find areas where reason has exercised more control or places where it's lost control to the appetite and, and the spirit. And it may be that this varies from day to day in, 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 in certain individuals and systems by body. And he has a class, And so one of the problems is how do we categorize uh, this kind of lumpiness and differences in a way that will enable us to say something analytically useful uh, without using it as an excuse to confirm tautologically uh, the kinds of statements that I'm making. Because it's very easy to fall into the trap uh, of tautology here, and I'm trying hard to, to avoid it. Uh, secondly, Let's come to the very simple ninth grade physics notion of, of um, solutions and mixtures. They behave, they're very different things. And when we have uh, combinations of spirit, appetite, reason, and lumpiness with respect to fear, does it behave like a mixture or a solution? Uh, what happens? And I don't have the answer to that yet. Uh, but I'm using this as my heuristic framework to try to work out answers of that because they're absolutely essential, but I'm deferring them to the second volume because that's where they sit. You can but it's the right question. Right. The, other, the other aspect to that is, is not only are there differences at a family level versus a state level, but that individuals are members of multiple levels. They're members of absolutely. families. And that's one of the ways, and this is interesting, and thank you for bringing that up too, because it, it, I, it, I forgot to answer that, but fold that into my answer to Alex earlier. Uh, one of the ways in which we cross levels is through individuals, because they occupy positions in the hierarchies of several levels. Uh, I, I'm writing another book, I hope, with my younger son on changing narratives of self-interest in the United States, and how they've gone from a, a, a more resembling Tocquevillian notions of self-interest well understood to what Tocqueville called individualism, the withdrawal of the individual within himself or herself or the family, and how it's then expressed in utter selfishness and disregard uh, of others. And if you look at, and I'm, we're showing how this is manifest in domains as diverse as driving, uh, sports, 
uh, business, the decline of comedy in Congress, and of course our unilateral foreign policy. And if you look, all the two organizations, civic organizations. Well, I, yes, also true. If you look at uh, foreign policy, take the generation that did what John Eikenberry liked so much, and I agree, embed the United States uh, in a deep network of reciprocal obligations through institutions that made it at most primus into Paris, which restrained its power, which made it consider others because it needed to persuade them to do what it wanted. This was done by people who came out of Wall Street banking and law firms, okay? who understood that the way you get ahead is by everybody getting ahead, and having an order is something from which all benefit. You know, in late as the 1970s, uh, over 93% of corporate CEOs from Fortune 500 companies believed in government regulation, and most of them wanted more of it because they benefited from an even kind of enforced playing field. Who are the people who are making policy now? Well, the Richard Pearls and Wolfowitzes, where do these people come from? Either the Beltway or from New Wealth Corporations, where you get ahead by taking no prisoners, by behaving in a very different way. And they bring their modus operandi that brought them to where they are in their worlds into foreign policy where they projected on it. So changes in individuals and their environments have profound effects when they're making decisions at, at other levels. I thought Wolf Lewis came from the academy. Well, he taught for a few years at Yale, but he was never really part of the academy. <laughs> you know, it reminds me of one of my favorite Israeli jokes. Do I have two seconds to tell a joke? Your joke will time. This American tourist is in Israel and uh, with his friend, and this is years ago, because it was Moshe Dayan was uh, still a defense minister, but it doesn't matter. And uh, they come to a square, and there's a statue that's covered up, and there's Moshe Dayan, there's a crowd gathering, and uh, the American says to his Israeli cousin, so what's happening? He says, ah, he says, this is going to be the new monument to the unknown Israeli soldier, and Moshe Dayan is why I'm telling you, Moshe Dayan is going to unveil it. So they stop, they listen to this very nice speech, and at the end they unveil the statue, and it says down below, Chaim Yakel Cohen, born Poland, uh, 1912, died Israel, 1967. And uh, the uh, American turns to this Israeli country, he says, no, he says, he's unknown. His name is Chaim Yankel Cohen. He says, how can he be the unknown soldier? And his cousin says, look, he says, Chaim Yankel Cohen. He says, as a tailor, he was known, but as a soldier. <laughs> 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 That's what I have to say about all the witches as well. I just wanted to push you. time for a moment. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to push you to talk about a name that hasn't come up yet, which is Fukuyama because Fukuyama has put Thumos in his best-selling book and into the homes of millions of readers who, who probably never encountered that word before. I and didn't see what I, I didn't post that word. Oh, well, it went in, the, in the book-length version of the article, The End of History. I only read the article. I was going to say. Almost all of the, the 300 page difference between the article and the book <laughs> is a huge discussion of Thumos. And he uses it in a completely different way than you do, which is. <laughs> oh, I'm so <laughs> Which is to justify not only a theory of stability, but a theory of finality. I mean, it's the end of history, thanks to Thumos. 
So I just was going to ask you how you, what you thought of Fukuyama's well, change. Well, I, I, would roll over in his grave. <laughs> uh, I, I haven't read it, but I certainly will. Now that you told me, thank you. I, I can't comment on it without reading it. I have no idea. Thank Good. you. <laughs> yes? Oh, of course. We have, we met outside at lunch. That was before I ate. My, I was focused on my appetite. <laughs> Actually, that's that's uh, part of my question. I have three small things that I wanted to ask you. One is you certainly interchangeably use the uh, term progress and then the term cycle for this alternative. Oh, no, I use the word progression. Okay. Not progress. Mm -hmm. Okay. There's a difference. Okay, so progression and yeah, 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 yeah. cyclical. Yeah, there's sort of no telos here. Okay. Um, and then, well, I guess I was I, I, I wanted you to, to paint with water strokes those distinctions between airs, to tell me more about the airs where you know these aggregations got the type and these aggregations of um, tumors prevail. But even most importantly, I'm interested in the distinction itself between sumos and appetites. Okay. If you could characterize them um, more sharply. And what made me wonder was your examples, if I understand correctly, um, you identify um, as spirits, uh, warrior spirits, and also the genes and the Japanese restaurants. Well, uh, let, me, let me just okay. specify this. It's, Don't it's, you think they go together? Warriors, jeans, well, and Japanese restaurants? Well, <laughs> I would say, I would say, well, specifically, specifically, I would say Plato, for example. If he were to call these three, uh, these three items, he would call them under different categories. He would squarely put the jeans and the Japanese restaurants under appetites and not under jeans. Okay. All right, let me give you a small answer to mm -hmm. a very good question. Uh, when Plato was writing, okay, antiquity was different from modernity in many ways. But one of the ways it was different on classical Greece was different in that thumos and appetite were more distinct categories in the sense that very few people acquired wealth to use it as a means of honor, okay? Even though it was essential to have some wealth to be recognized as part of the elite where you were allowed to compete for honor, okay? But they were different things, and the Greeks consciously tried to keep them different, symbolized, of course, by the award of just an olive wreath to the winner of the Olympics. Uh, to show that it was entirely separate from material gain, although we know how the system ultimately became corrupted in Hellenistic times, with winners not only having poetry written about them, but being hailed as great victors and being paid vast sums of money by towns, and sort of like the corruption of modern sports. But that hadn't happened at the time of Plato. And certainly the people who used their military prowess to gain wealth were frowned upon. I mean, they were basically tyrants, and it was uh, a very nasty category uh, in, in, in which to be. So they, they're separate. And when you read Plato's Republic, he's very clear about how separate uh, they are, and gives the example of Leontius, who is uh, drawn by his perverse appetite in this case. He gets pleasure from looking at dead bodies. But he realizes that there are a few things in his society 
that are held in lower esteem than necrophilia and the pleasure of looking at even just looking at bodies. So he feels unhappy about his own attempt to do this and tries to suppress it because honor to him is more important than satisfying this appetite. And Plato elsewhere in the Republic refers back to uh, Odysseus, uh, who finally comes home and encounters, encounters Penelope and her suitors. And his first inclination brought about by his thumos is rage, and he wants to kill these bastards. But then he realizes he better constrain himself because if he gives in now, he's not going to be able to do it. And so he shows how reason triumphs uh, over this and uses this to come back, as he does in politics, to the difference between uh, appetite and spirit and the problems that reason has in dealing uh, with both. Now, the problem in the modern world is that there are two big changes. The first change is that honor and standing separate out. And honor and standing separate out because of the emergence of the modern individual with the I identity and the notion of there being an individual who is somebody other than the sum of the roles that he or she performs in the society. And again, come back to Homer, the classic denouement where Priam and Achilles lament their respective losses, share a meal together, which is a way of overcoming mourning and also creating a personal relationship, but then get drawn back into the battle, even though they know the outcome for both, both of them, uh, because they lack an alternative discourse to construct a different identity for themselves. And in this sense, one can read Homer as the first great anti-war novel, urging people to, to do this and to get outside of it, because with that vocabulary, you can escape from the script. Okay? Modernity escapes from it and creates individuals, and along comes romanticism that takes it a step further that says, in fact, what you have to do to be truthful to yourself, you have to discover who you are, and everybody is unique, and everybody is not a product of the society, huh? and you have to drag that self out and, and, and express it. Huh? And it's a very interesting book that recently came out on Beethoven, I'm looking at it in, 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 in this line, even in, in Greek terms. Now, um, with that, you therefore have honor separate from standing, because honor becomes internalized and standing is external. Uh, it's relational, and it's a question of what other people see, whereas honor exists in the dark because you know it yourself. And Montesquieu talks about the first uh, person, I think, theoretically, to talk about the difference, although the project begins, as Dory and I were talking much earlier, uh, with the writers who go deconstruct the hero, but philosophically, uh, it's, it's certainly explicit in, in, in Montesquieu. So that's uh, that, that's a very big difference. And the other big difference I already noted is that spirit and appetite come back to each other because they're no longer separate, but one can easily use one as a means to another. I mean, Harold Laswell had this wonderful postscript to the second edition of uh, Politics, Who Gets What, When, and How, which is 1952, and it's 1938, is the, the, or 1940 is the original one in which he comes up with this little model. He used to use the acronym PubSard uh, to describe it. Power, enlightenment, wealth, well-being, skill, affection, rectitude, and deference. This, in his mind, <coughs> were the universal categories that describe all human, that could capture all human behavior. Okay? 
And what was interesting was when the people were using them as means to an end, and you could chart individuals and societies by which ones they maximized and used towards which ends. Okay? So the problem becomes immensely complex, and Rousseau talks about this, and Rousseau argues in the discourse on inequality, in part two of it, why human behavior is so unpredictable, and it's because in the modern era, the means and the ends relationship basically between spirit and appetite has become conflated and so complex that individuals themselves don't know what they're doing with it. So it becomes a very knotty um, theoretical problem that distinguishes modernity from antiquity and makes the problem that much more difficult for the theorist. I, I'm sorry, I, it's the best answer I can give you at this point. Let's get one last question and I'll, yeah. I have a question. Thanks. I guess if there, there's two ways to challenge the theory. One is on its internal consistency. Okay. Sorry, tell me. I, 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 there, if there's, oh, I'm key. Okay. Um, if there's two ways to challenge a theory, one on its sort of internal consistency, okay. and the other on how it explains the facts it perverts to explain, this is on the, the latter ground. Um, two, two of the pieces of evidence that you cited to support your theory were um, sports and what's happening in sports and uh, the cases of the war in Iraq and U.S. conduct and the international response. And I wanted to challenge both of those. I mean, it seems oh, to me that ha what's happening in sports is just the opposite of what you said, um, that people are identifying less and less strongly um, with teams. Certainly, that's what's happened to me. I used to be a diehard Redskins fan. And then all the players who had been there for 15 years left because they wanted more money. Uh, or because they got older, um, or because something happens which is uh, becoming endemic to the degeneration of sports and into, into an appetite-driven uh, thing rather than a spirit-driven thing. And the second, the war in Iraq seems to me... Hey, can I come do the sport one first? Oh. <laughs> because I think in a way we're making the same argument and you're supporting my point. And I agree with you. I used to be a great sports fan until the Brooklyn Dodgers sold me out and moved west. I never recovered from that problem. Uh, people were attracted, and many still are, to sports because of the spirit and to the extent to which it's seen as dominated by the appetite. Indeed, you would expect people to move away from it, which, as you say, may well be what's happening. Uh, I wasn't saying that people are more involved in sports. I was saying that people have been involved in sports. And I agree with you that it's declining, and that you pick the reason precisely why that's happening, and that that grows out of my theory. Okay. So I see it as supportive of it. So let's come to Iraq. Okay. Well, again, it seems to me that uh, you can make just the opposite argument from the one you made, that um, what the, the status quo was appetite-based. It was a despotic ruler who wanted to exploit his people for his own... We're talking now about within Iraq. Within Iraq, but we'll get to the U.S. Okay. international context. No, okay. Sorry? That the U.S. essentially, by what it did, changed that society from one that was dominated by Saddam's appetites to something different, which is not necessarily better, um, but it is different from that. Um, and to make the argument you did mis misreads it. Okay. You see, I, I would tell a different story about Iraq. I don't think I the U.S. It. has changed that society at all. Uh, I think that Iraq 
is still a largely traditional society in which honor and standing are very important. And although appetite is there as well, uh, spirit has been more important in this kind of society than it is in the United States. And that those who make American policy, this is yet one more thing that they didn't understand. And to the extent to which they tried to uh, satisfy and placate and win over Iraqi opinion through the occupation, it's been purely by trying to satisfy the appetite, by belatedly you know, building hospitals, sewerage, schools, getting infrastructure going, providing security, not that they're succeeding, but that this is what they've been trying to do. But in the process, they've undermined, uh, they've attacked the Iraqi spirit because they're doing it in such a way that makes it even more apparent how subordinate the Iraqis are, how much more of an occupied country it is. And it was one thing for Saddam to rule. He was at least seen as an Iraqi by some people. The US is uniformly seen as a foreigner. So we may, to some extent, be addressing Iraqi appetite. But in the process, we're dramatically offending the spirit. And that's a principal reason why there's growing opposition to us, and Washington is absolutely blind. So I would argue that my theory actually tells you a lot about the dynamics of what happens in Iraq. I, I don't disagree, but at least put it this way, even if we disagree, it creates framework for talking about it, which is not currently one of the ones being used. Uh, final question, and then Rick? Is it so far, and I'm going down to the level that justice is important and looking at its effects and how it's incorporated, okay? I'm not looking at the other end about how conceptions of justice grow. Uh, I argue, of course, that they're all local. Yeah, that's, that's another question. I'm going to beg off. <laughs> I'm struck, Ned, by uh, your moving from status to power. It's interesting in the sense that the work I do I think there are a lot of ways to satisfy desires for esteem. So, you know, genes with the diamond stud, and most of them don't affect politics. In fact, people are enormously creative in how they can figure out how to satisfy their esteem needs by targeting very niche audiences. And so tonight, when we're at dinner, I want to hear more about how you get from that to politics, because when you went to status in the international community, standing there, they call it, it was membership in the United Nations Security Council an old-fashioned power, sort of a measure of standing becomes, uh, uh, you argue for it on different dimensions, but, well, but, but you're, question, still, you're still measuring it no, but the question becomes, old -fashioned do you power want to be on the Security Council because it gives you power, or do you want to be on the Security Council because it gives you standing? I thought your argument was, you believe you have standing, and therefore you deserve power. But there's no question the reason you want to be on the Security Council, in my view, would veto Rights is power ah, it's over others because my stud in the blue jeans doesn't give me any power over anyone else. It just 
Well, at least we can argue this. Okay, we'll have to argue this. Over. As always, Ned has fed our appetite. <laughs> and, and at least around a few spirits. And he's raised our standing when we were here and given us a lot of spirit over the years. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>